Morning, everybody. Take, take two. I want to talk to you about trust this morning, and in particular, I want to talk to you about trusting in God. I wonder if I asked you the question, what is the Christian life like? Well, no, suppose somebody walks up to you into the street and says, what is the Christian life like? What would you say? Well, I was thinking about this myself, and I think I'd say, well, I love following Jesus. That's cool. That's great. It's really worthwhile that I've given my life to him and I like following him. I like following him. That sounds a bit limp, but you know what I mean. I love that I'm part of his body, the church. Most of the time. Um, slight qualification there, but I, I do. I'm glad that I'm part of a congregation of people, not just your good selves, but the church worldwide. But I have discovered, it's taken a while, but I have discovered that the Christian life is not all plain sailing. It's not all a bed of roses, unless, of course, you're talking about the thorns that are in there. In fact, that one of the things I've learned, and one of the things I had to learn very early on, was that I had to learn to trust God, even though, at times, that was a really difficult thing to do. And not only did I have to learn to trust God, but I had to learn to choose to choose to trust him. Time and time again, that it's the choice that we have to make. And learning to trust God and choosing to trust God are foundational aspects of what it means to be a follower of Christ. But more of that in a short while. As Sarah said at the beginning, it's Palm Sunday. So I want to read to you uh, Matthew chapter 21 and verses 1 to 11. I'm reading it from the message version, so you might just want to uh, listen along. So when they neared Jerusalem, having arrived at Bethphage on Mount Olives, Jesus sent two disciples with these instructions. Go over to the village across from you. You'll find a donkey tethered there, her colt with her. Untie her and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, say, the master needs them. He will send them with you. This is the full story of what was sketched out earlier by the prophet. Tell Zion's daughter, look, your king's on his way, poised and ready, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, foal of a pack animal. The disciples went and did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They led the donkey and colt out, laid some of their clothes on them, and Jesus mounted. Nearly all the people in the crowd threw their garments down on the road, giving him a royal welcome. Others cut branches from the trees and threw them down as a welcome mat. Crowds went ahead and crowds followed, all of them calling out, Hosanna to David's son. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Hosanna in highest heaven. As he made his entrance into Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken. Unnerved people were asking, what's going on here? Who is this? The parade crowd answered, this is the prophet Jesus, the one from Nazareth in Galilee. So on Palm Sunday, Jesus arrives into Jerusalem riding on a donkey where he is welcomed by cheering crowds. His arrival, often called the triumphal entry, 
was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy through Zechariah. He prophesied about the Messiah's arrival in Jerusalem. To anyone with a knowledge of the Jewish scriptures, it would have been clear that the way that Jesus entered into Jerusalem pointed towards him as the Messiah. You know, over the previous three years, the disciples had seen Jesus performing amazing miracles. They'd listened to his astounding teaching and they'd been able to spend time with him up close and personal. Whatever challenges or difficulties they'd had to face up to that point, today was a good day. Now things are going really well. This was an exciting time for the disciples. Imagine it. They've been following him for year after year, but now crowds of people are gathering around to uh, cheer Jesus and welcome him as he enters into the city. They knew the significance of Zechariah's prophecy. They knew that this was its full fulfillment. They knew that Jesus really was the Messiah. What a day. What could possibly go wrong? Well, <laughs> as if you didn't know, this is Palm Sunday. On Monday, Jesus goes into the temple and angers the Jewish leaders by throwing out all the traders. On Tuesday, he confronts the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. On Wednesday, a relatively quiet day, Judas agrees to betray Jesus for cash. Thursday, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples and later that night is betrayed by Judas, is arrested and taken into custody. Friday, Jesus is subject to several trials, is mocked and abused. Peter denies Christ three times and Jesus is crucified. Saturday. Well, how would you have been feeling on Saturday? What a week. At the beginning of the week, Jesus was a celebrity. At the end of the week, he's lying in a cemetery. Imagine someone from out of town bumming into one of the disciples and asking, so how's your week been? (laughs) But these are his disciples. These are the ones that he chose to be with them for those three years. They'll be fine, surely. Well, let's consider some of the words used to describe the way the disciples are feeling at this stage. Peter denies Christ because of his fear of being identified as one of Jesus' disciples. And when Jesus appears to the group of ten disciples after his resurrection, they're described as being together in a room with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. So I guess one of the words we could use to describe the way the disciples were feeling was fear. When Mary Magdalene rang to te- ran to tell not rang, sorry, <laughs> ran to tell the disciples that she had seen Jesus alive, they did not believe her. In Luke's account, he recounts that the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So maybe the word unbelief 
would be another good word to describe how they were feeling. When Jesus appeared, appears to and questions the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they do not recognize him. They are described as standing still, staring at the ground. They were literally downcast. Disappointment was their emotion. They used these words, we had hoped. What a sad phrase. We had hoped and yet now they are hopeless. Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. It seems to me that most of the disciples actually just melted into the background. They disappear, they withdraw, they hide. The only people mentioned as being at the cross are a group of women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. Only John is the male disciple listed as being there. Where were the others? I do wonder how I would have coped. How about you? I know there have been times a lot less difficult than this when I felt fear. When you could describe me as having unbelief. When I've felt disappointment. There have been times, definitely been times, too many times, when I felt without hope. Well, maybe we can learn from the disciples' experience. There are actually, obviously, many things that we can learn. I've just written down a few here. The first thing, it seems to me, is we cannot rely upon circumstances. There's nothing in these circumstances that gives me a cause for celebration or joy. They're desperate circumstances. I learned that stuff often doesn't make sense. The disciples are confused, unclear about what's going on, even though Jesus has told them so many times before and predicted what will happen. And I learned that the journey can be thoroughly unpleasant, even terrifying at times. But that doesn't make sense. I'm a Christian now. Surely life should be good. I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. He loves me. We've been singing it this morning. We've heard it prayed over us this morning, prophesied over us this morning, that we are adored by him. Surely life should be easy. Well, I've got a promise verse for you that I guarantee is not on your fridge. It comes from John 16 and it's verse 33. And it includes these words from Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Okay, has anybody got on their fridge? Just, okay, maybe it'd actually be a really good one to put on your fridge. What a promise. At the start of this talk this morning, I said that notwithstanding all the benefits of following Jesus, of which there are obviously many, the Christian life can often be a mess and incomprehensible. And that learning to trust God and choosing to trust God are foundational aspects of what it means to be a Christian. And now to that I want to add, Jesus promises us trouble. We must find a way to trust him through that trouble. Why does it have to be that way? Or this way? Well, I don't know exactly. 
But I do have a few insights, I think. Last spring, we bought and chose to plant, perhaps the other way around, made the decision, then we bought three fruit trees. Two plum, one apple. Always wanted to grow fruit in the garden, and we decided to go for it. So I looked up all the advice for how to plant your fruit trees. The first, fairly obvious, you dig a hole. You write this down if you think it might help. But the thing you don't do, apparently, is put a whole bunch of fertilizer in the bottom of the hole. And the reason is, you want the plant to be hungry. If the plant is hungry, it will push its roots out into the soil. You want it to go looking for the nutrients. So don't put fertilizer in the bottom of the planting hole. The other thing I discovered is that there's a school of thought that says, do not stake the tree. Don't put a pole in to support it, which seems to go against the prevailing practice. But the theory is that if you stake the tree, that when the winds blow, it just relies upon that stake to support it. If you don't stake the tree, when the winds blow, the tree... Now, I don't know if trees can be feel emotions. The tree is frightened it might fall over. It has senses instability. And again, it pushes its roots out in order to gain that stability. I have to say, there were I, I chose not to stake the tree. I have to admit, though, last winter, which isn't that long ago, there are times when, I mean, the wind blows quite strong across our garden. I was really tempted to go out, even in the middle of the night, sometimes to hit some stakes in. But I do not want those snapping. They've survived. They're okay. Covered in blossom at the moment. But the tree, so the, so the tree, the adversity promotes deeper, wider, and stronger roots. When you feel you're being deprived of something, hungry, when you feel you're being buffeted, tested by something, I want to put it to you that it's an opportunity and an encouragement to grow your roots, to send them down deeper, to send them out wider and to grow them stronger. Let me read to you a few Bible verses. I'm going to read these from the NIV, I think they are. First of all, Romans chapter 5 verse 3 says, We glory in our sufferings. Do you get that? Yeah. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. There's a purpose in our adversity. Even so that Paul says that we can glory in our sufferings. James chapter 1 verse 2 I know you, you know it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It's that same word. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. Would you like to be mature, complete, and lacking nothing? I would. I just don't like the recipe. The trials of many kinds which test our faith, they test it. They kind of rock the tree. They kind of test it. Are you going to stand? 
Well, how deep are your roots? And then 1 Peter 1, 1.6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. We can greatly rejoice. And the previous word, I didn't draw it to our attention, but consider it pure joy. And the first verse I read, Romans 5, we glory in. This is crazy. Three different authors, Paul, James and Peter. And they're all suggesting that we celebrate the fact that we have to go through trial and adversity. Not because it's a pleasant experience. It is not a pleasant experience. It wouldn't be a trial. It wouldn't be adversity if it was. But because of what it produces in us. The perseverance that it can produce in us. The maturity, the character and the hope that it produces in us. There is a purpose. As I say, it is not a pleasant experience. But it can help to know that there is a purpose. It can help us to find the courage and the determination to get through to know that God is working things into us. Okay, let's look at a couple of other verses. These are from Proverbs chapter 3. You might want to look, to the, look at these with me. Proverbs chapter 3 in verses 5 and 6. If you've ever taken the trouble to commit any verses to memory, you've probably memorized these two. They were certainly probably the first verses I ever memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your paths straight. As I say, they're two of the first verses I ever memorized and I've had cause many, many times over the years to call them back to memory in so many different situations. I want to just say and declare they've been a real help to me. They've really strengthened me. They've really given me the courage and the determination I've needed at times. Not that I've handled it well. It could, sometimes it's going through by your fingernails, isn't it? It's just about hanging on. Um, I do hold on to that other promise of God that it says we'll never be tempted beyond what we can bear. Thank you. That's the word. Um, but it, it looks messy at times. Let me just break this down a little bit. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. I've tried other ways. I've tried it with, you know, a bit. <laughs> so when it talks about with all of your heart, it means with your, your very being, with everything that's in you. That's the only way I know how to get through some of the rubbish and challenges that have come my way. It has to be with your whole heart. It has to be with all that you have within you. You know, it's really easy to sing that. All that is within me will praise 
much easier to sing it than to do it. But I'm not going to stop singing it because it helps me to just remind myself and reinforcing myself that that's the kind of person that God has called me to be and that I can be as I trust in him and lean heavily upon him. Which is the next phrase. Do not lean on your own understanding. I don't know what you're like, but I do like to kind of get a grip on what's happening around me. I like to understand. I like to know the reason. But leaning on your own understanding, well, I went years and years ago, many years ago now, I went for a walk with my dad and we were kind of route marching up a country lane and he had a stick with him. I don't know why he had a stick because he didn't need a stick to walk. It must have been just like, you know, like a pre-runner of these fancy walking poles that everybody seems to have these days. He had a stick and we just stopped at one moment for a bit of a rest and he leant on his stick, just kind of put his way on it and it snapped. And he just fell completely into the ditch. I have never laughed so much in my life. It was so funny. I was probably about 17 or 18 or something. It was just so funny to see my dad fall over. But he leant on his own understanding. I'm not, you know what I mean, literally. But, and it didn't do him a right lot of good. And there's so many times, I bless God that he gave me that experience. Not for my dad's sake, although he was laughing as well. Um, but just because that ver- that situation has come back into my mind so many times when I've been thinking about this verse, lean on your understanding if you want to, but it's gonna, you're going to be in the ditch. <laughs> the next verse starts, in all your ways, submit to him. I choose to submit my will to his will. I choose to submit my ways to his ways. Isaiah 58 includes these verses. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. To me, this is worship. This is what worship is. Submitting, sacrificing all that I have, all that I am, to him, and acknowledging that his ways are so much greater than mine. In fact, I think in the AV, in the, um, the King James Version, actually talks about in all your ways acknowledge him. Now, that's the version I learnt it in anyway. In all your ways acknowledge him. And it's like doffing my cap to him because his ways are so much higher than my ways. And here's the promise. He will make your path straight. Now I have to confess that I did misunderstand that bit. I did read that as and he will make your paths easy. I have learned over the years that that is not what it says. There have been times when I, my testimony is that by putting my trust in God in this way and really choosing to do it, that things have opened up so much more simply than I was anticipating. But that has definitely not been my universal experience. There have been times when I've still had to really choose to cling on And trust God. But part of my trust is that he is making a path for me through my circumstances. Reading from Isaiah again, this time chapter 43, verse 19. It says, see I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. This is the God that can make a way in the wilderness. Well, he can help me through my 
wilderness experience, my challenging situation, and I choose to trust him. So if you've never committed verses to memory, or you haven't for a while, and you don't know those, they're verses I would recommend. They're very, very helpful. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. But let me just tell you a story. This story is about somebody called Horatio Spafford. You might know his name. You might not. It's an unusual name, isn't it? Horatio Gates Spafford was born in New York on the 20th of October, 1828. But it was in Chicago that he became well known for his clear Christian testimony. He and his wife, Anna, were active in their church and their homes were always open to visitors. They counted the world-famous evangelist Dwight L. Moody among their friends. They were blessed with five children and considerable wealth. Horatio was a lawyer and owned a great deal of property in his home city. When four years old, their son, Horatio Jr., died suddenly of scarlet fever. Then only a year later, in October 1871, a massive fire swept through downtown Chicago, devastating the city, including many properties owned by Horatio. He suffered substantial financial loss. Two years later, in 1873, Spafford decided his family should take a holiday in England, knowing that his friend, the evangelist D.L. Moody, would be preaching there in the autumn. Horatio was delayed because of business, so he sent his family ahead. His wife and their four remaining children, all daughters, 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Elizabeth, and 2-year-old Tanetta. On the 22nd of November, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on the steamship Ville de Havre, their vessel was struck by an iron sailing ship. 226 people lost their lives as the ship sank within only 12 minutes. All four of Horatio Spafford's daughters perished. But remarkably, Anna Spafford survived the tragedy. Upon arrival in Cardiff, Anna immediately sent a telegram to her husband, which included the words, Saved Alone. Receiving Anna's message, he set off at once to be reunited with his wife, One particular day during the voyage, the captain summoned him to the bridge. Pointing to his charts, he explained that they were passing over the very spot where the Ville du Havre had sunk and where his daughters had died. It is said that Spafford returned to his cabin and wrote the hymn, It is well with my soul. Now you may know the hymn, you may not. Let me read to you the first two verses. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And the refrain It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio and Anna had a choice to make. They chose to trust God. And the hymn is Horatio's confession of that trust. 
your life might not be as dramatic as the Spaffords or the disciples during Holy Week. I don't know, maybe it is. But if you're going through a tough time right now, my question to you is, will you choose to trust God? Maybe you've been through a tough time. In fact, I think it's guaranteed that all of us have been through tough times. And maybe you've made it out the other side, but feel damaged by that journey. Will you choose to trust what God says about trials and difficulties? Will you allow your life to be filled with sadness, bitterness, and disappointment for yesterday? Or will you allow your life to be filled with hope for tomorrow? I'm not saying it's easy, obviously. It's anything but easy. But will I trust? Will I choose to trust him? You might be in the room thinking, well, I've never trusted Jesus. I've never put my trust in him. It might be for you that the question comes from the, for the first time. Will you put your trust in Jesus? Because he doesn't promise you an easy life. In fact, he promises you trouble. But he does promise to make your path straight. He does promise to be with you on the journey. And he does promise to lavish you with his love. For me, this choice, this choosing to trust, is utterly and totally foundational to our faith, to our discipleship, to our following Jesus. Will I trust? Just want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment. We'll just spend a few minutes quietly. I'd just like to ask you to think about what I've been sharing this morning. Maybe think about the example of the, Jesus, uh, of the disciples during Holy Week or the story of the Spaffords or whatever it might be, the verses that I've shared. Just allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart. And I encourage you to make this your prayer. Lord, I trust you. Help me to trust you more. To you, Lord, I lift up my soul. Oh, my God, I trust in you. Amen.